0: Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common, but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us, in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very kindly sponsored by Oh Lovely. Oh Lovely is a beautiful Irish company built on belief. The belief that you can be anything and everything you wish to be. All O Lovely candles and diffusers contain crystals and gemstones to increase energy and to power your beliefs. So whether you're taking some well-earned me time pausing to reflect and reconnect, or sending positive thoughts to loved ones. Oh, lovely, positive affirmation candles make the perfect gift. Oh, lovely have very kindly offered Unspoken listeners 20% off site-wide when using code UNSPOKEN. Today, I'm joined by Olivia, who has very bravely agreed to share her Unspoken with us. During our conversation, Olivia speaks to me about her problematic drinking, and the impact it had on her life, on her relationships, and on the way she viewed herself. Olivia, welcome to Unspoken. Thank you so much for joining me today. And where I'd love to begin is to go right back to where your Unspoken
1: began for you. Okay, so um, I started drinking alcohol when I was 15. Well, I actually had three vodkas when I was 14, but actually started it fully when I was 15. I was in junior cert. Um, yeah, so like drinking with friends at the weekend, uh, I suppose like nagins of vodka and um uh, those pop drinks um mm. yeah alco pops uh so started then and like it was never it was always kind of about fun and sociability and it was quite light back then um I went to university um up in northern Ireland and went on my own I was only 17 well, going was so young. yeah so young like an actual baby yeah yeah so went up at 17 graduated at 20 and like that so going from like I'm from a really small village um like there was five girls in my primary school class and like then uh, so going up uh, to the north of Ireland was kind of very overwhelming. So I suppose I met a lot of really good crack people up there. They were big into and I found my tribe. There's still a lot of my great friends. So yeah so uh, we went out like a few nights a week. Um, So that's it was again it was all very light. Uh, went um, my Kind of early twenties, so I finished at twenty, came moved down to Dublin, um, worked um in like kind of caring professions. And again, so my social life was really, really important. We kind of lived for the weekends, me and all my friends, and it was all about having a good time, connecting, having the best crack we could, and mm. it always revolved around alcohol. So um yeah, so kind of my mid-20s then, um, I went to Australia again, lots of booze and lots of fun nights out, you know, again, quite light and um, started to get a, li- a few little physical uh, symptoms. Then I got like bad reflux, but that was, I, I look back now, that was sheer alcohol. Um, and then mo- came back from Australia and moved to England to do a master's again, the kind of, you know, small town girl going into the big smoke, um, feeling really, really vulnerable and Alcohol wasn't really a problem over there because I didn't have the friendships. So the okay. alcohol was always something I did around my friends, like a really, really wide uh, friendship circle. And it was always brunches and 21sts and 30ths, and then weddings and nights out and christenings and all these kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was never, I was never drinking. By myself in the morning, I was never uh, drinking to cope. I was always drinking with my friends for a reason. You and know? if you go back to those early
0: days, you know, in your teens and even in your early 20s, what did alcohol do for you?
1: What was it like You know, going on those nights out and having alcohol there. Yeah. So I was, I, as I reflect back now, I had a social anxiety. I'd say every human on earth probably does, but it felt very intense to be me. So it felt Uh, Like I was very shy. So going into a room full of people who appeared to be more confident than me, alcohol was just, it was kind of like an elixir. Like I drank it and I became the person that I was on the inside, but just didn't have the confidence to portray on the outside. So it really, like it really, really helped me. You know, it helped me to become social. It helped me to become the person who I was on the inside. Um, And it just, it was a real Uh, crutch I suppose yeah yeah so it really gave you something absolutely absolutely and I think it would be uh, remiss of me to say that it didn't because it absolutely did it was great when it was great and then as we kind of further journeyed along that lightness kind of became more more dark and then even more dark and then even more dark. But it definitely was helpful in the beginning, you know, yeah. for my personality, I suppose, to develop and for all those friendships to grow and the connection and not so much the connection of the nights out or whatever. It was the connection of the day after when we'd all have our story to tell. And that kind of there was real vulnerabilities shared. That was the one that I loved the most, probably is the one I love the most still. Like, you know, the night or the morning after it was just so beautiful beautiful to connect with people and we all had our guards down and we were all like you know, so I remember being 17, 18, 19, meeting people who were very different to the people I grew up with, um, who had maybe a bit more knowledge of the world or had bigger personalities. And just even being around those was just so gorgeous. And, you know, me, all my kind of anxieties fading, falling away because of alcohol was, it was exciting, mm-hmm. you know, it really, really was. And I'm sure people listening will really be able to relate to
0: that, you know, that first sip of alcohol when you're feeling a bit nervous, a bit anxious, and suddenly, I know I've been in that situation before where I feel calmer having that
1: first sip of alcohol. So I'm sure that's something that lots of people will relate to. Absolutely. For me, I loved three sips. Three sips felt gorgeous. Like one, two, and like the uh, rush of blood to your face, that kind of euphoria, the dopamine. Like it just felt like there was loads going on Mm. and the excitement of what would happen on a night out, you know, it just, it felt very, um, it just felt kind of euphoric gnarly okay yeah
0: yeah and when did that start to to change for you
1: yeah so i came back from australia uh, sorry so came back from england actually and i was 26 at the time i'd put on a lot of weight over there um and a, a lot of my friends had moved on so they'd got boyfriends, or they'd moved abroad, or whatever, and I came back and got a job, but wasn't really feeling me. It got a job that I, I love, and I, I still work in that area. Um, but so I was, I was lonely. Um, I was depressed. I definitely think now I was depressed. I know my parents would have worried about me at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have told me since that, that my mood was very low. And then like I was going out every weekend. So every Friday, th- probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I was really... I was really looking for love because I hadn't really been in a relationship before that. Um, and I was looking to connect with somebody. I was looking to share my life with somebody Mm -hmm. and that wasn't happening. And, you know, so that was 26, 27, 28, um, moved in with two of my best friends, um, to a house called St. Jude's, the patron saint of hopeless cases. And there was nobody <laughs> more hopeless than us three. But uh, we used to have this thing where like we'd try and sit in on a Friday night and someone would come barging through the door and they would like, we're not going to meet our husbands in this sitting room. We need to go out. <laughs> so off we went. Yeah. But listen, I... I'm a really enthusiastic person I think I was really enthusiastic about drinking I took it a little bit further than everybody else Uh, I drank to excess I always like if I came in on a party or like a night out that people were there for maybe an hour or two before me I'd go and drink shots at the bar because I think I'd be trailing uh, behind them and I never ever ever knew the cutoff point so I never knew the one that was one too many Mm. I used to of saying know the one that's one too many and make it a double like and that's when the problem started so like I never you know I know people who say oh that's my one. That's, that's yeah. the one I know when to go home. I never knew when to go home. I used to set the alarm on my phone to say, go home. And then again, <laughs> go home. But I never took my own advice. I never went home. I just, I was always there till till the bitter end. You know, and I know now that I drink really fast. Like I drink coffee really fast. I drink water really fast mm-hmm. and I drank alcohol really, really fast. And I'm really sensitive to it. I now know. So there was massive blackouts. I'd say seven times out of 10 that I drank our blackout. Now, not just blackout for half an hour. I was in a pub one night for four hours. And I had to be told the next day that I was in that pub. So it was, so what I then did with that, as I got older, Mm. what I then did with that, I filled that space with the most unimaginable things so like what I said to people you know I imagined myself in different scenarios or whatever none of them had happened but I just I know I panicked you know that the sheer level of not knowing really really started to affect me. So that was a very, very dark time, kind of those uh, late 20s. I met my husband when I was 28. Um, He is a mannerly drinker. So he uh, definitely kind of calmed me in so many ways. But drinking, because he like we could often uh, have a bottle of wine together and it would never reach blackout. It would never, it was always very civil. Whereas when, because he's a very civil person, you know, whereas when I'd go out with the rest of my friends, it would just be wild. Mm -hmm. And I incited a lot of that wildness. I won't deny that. Like I was like, right, let's do shots, all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I got married, had kids again. uh, So was the drinking kind of, calmed down a little bit after that but so it calmed down but the repercussions became worse so the guilt the dread the anxiety the utter sheer self-loathing when I woke up and I couldn't remember anything I would literally I was so hard on myself it just felt so horrific to be in my body Mm -hmm. with alcohol at the same time so the yeah. hangovers were absolutely horrific nothing short of it so you know I would have intrusive thoughts I would have like hallucinations all these really 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 negative things I could lay in bed for like 10 hours with sheer dread mm. like one day I looked into the wall for eight hours with pure panic and it just you know I know this sounds kind of ridiculous. But I never—it never actually occurred to me to give up alcohol in during all that time. Mm. Uh, I know my husband used to always say to me, "If I had hanger was like you, I'd never drink." But I couldn't hear it because I'd nobody around me to go, "Oh, she doesn't drink, and she's actually grand." Mm. But there was nobody. There was no role models. There was nobody that I could aspire to be, look up to. I drank like everybody else mm. that I know, a little bit more excessive, mind you, but everybody else and if you looked in at my life it was really functional like I have a gorgeous relationship with my husband I have lovely kids I have a great job my family are beautiful you know really supportive like nothing was wrong except you'd wake up on the Sunday and you would just have
0: the fear that everybody talks about, but it the sounds fear. like it was multiplied by hundreds,
1: hundred. Multiplied by a million. That's yeah. how, that, how it felt on the inside. I think even the physicality of my bedroom changed on those, on those days. Mm. Like just this, the, it smelled different. Everything about it was dread. And like literally, so the, I would open my eyes and maybe blackness will be there, but I would say, Oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? Who did I talk to? What happened? You know, just those first few seconds of opening, pure dread.
0: So you would
1: black out, but that wouldn't
0: necessarily mean that you'd go fall asleep in a corner. You would still be up partying, but you wouldn't remember. Just wouldn't remember.
1: So whatever was going on in my brain, I wasn't uh, recording memories. Yeah. Yeah. So the memories had stopped. So oftentimes I'd be put to bed. Like I was put to bed a couple of times Mm. as a 37 year old woman. And that kind of led to the beginning of the end. Okay. Yeah.
0: And during those years, can you recall some of the things that you did during those blackouts that you carry shame
1: over? Is that okay to ask? Yeah. How long have you got? (laughs) Oh, I'd I'd say I have a hundred. The two that kind of come to mind the most and the two that um, probably led to me giving up alcohol um, in the end was one... Um, my husband's grandfather died, and we went down to the funeral. And um, I was on a diet at the time, so I hadn't eaten much. And uh, uh, so after the funeral, we went to a hotel, and I had three glasses of wine and a couple of gins. And I ended up talking absolute dirt to his family and saying things that were completely ridiculous. But when it came, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when we. Uh, went home and I snuck wine into the car while my sober grieving husband drove us drove me home and I put it into the coffee cup beside me now I can't remember that journey home and um, seemingly my mother who was minding our very young kids at the time brought me into bed and put me to bed and she was so gracious and so gorgeous to me the next day Um, because so that was about maybe five o'clock and I woke up that night at nine o'clock. Um, I didn't know how the kids got to bed, but obviously he put them to bed and the sheer dread that I felt in that moment. So it was pure panic. Mm. I was like, how did I end up here? What happened? I was at a funeral. I can't remember Anthony after that. So I mean sheer panic. So our um upstairs is like a converted attic and we've a walk-in wardrobe. And I walked into that, I grabbed my phone, I sat in the cupboard part of it, and I apps like I was I was hysterical and I rang my brother, my younger brother, and um I was like, I have a serious problem with alcohol him and it's making me do all these things and I don't know what to do where do I go with this and he was like it's okay just get back into bed you're going to be fine you need to go back to sleep and you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be fine so uh, I was still hysterically crying in the cupboard and my husband came in he was like what are you doing and he was like come on get to bed you're fine okay and then the next morning again i woke up with that feeling of i am disgusting how could i do this i am the worst person in the world There is nobody more horrific than me and i turned over into the bed and i was like i'm so sorry and um do you want a divorce and he said to me he got up out of the bed and he goes you know what's worse than the drinking? He said, this pathetic behavior. And he is the most gorgeous man on earth. And he deserves the best part of me, the same way as I deserve the best part of him. Mm. And it literally hit me like a train. That it had made me become so... It, it it made me misrepresent myself in the most catastrophic way that my husband was forced to say that to me. He has never spoken to me like that since mm. or before. He's just the most gorgeous, gentle soul.
0: And was he angry in that
1: moment? Yeah. And like, he doesn't really do anger. Like we call him, his name is Gary. We call him the Gary Lama because he's so calm. <laughs> he's so calm. It's like not even normal how calm he is. But... um <laughs> he was so angry and I just I was now my initial reaction was like fine but then Mm. as the day went on I went he actually has a big big point why was he angry? because it was pathetic it really was because he had to drive me home while I snuck red wine I was pretending that I wasn't drinking Mm. and he was driving me home to our children while I got drunk at his granddad's funeral it's like I, I have a, a tendency to be really hard on myself, you know. I can hear that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know. He just he was angry because it was it was awful behavior, you know. Um, there was another incident then where where again I completely misrepresented myself. So this was the 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 last day so i gave up drinking on the 4th of july and i call it i was reborn on the 4th of july but on the 3rd of july we had gone to a wedding in spain and uh, we had done 3 days of drinking over there and i was in moderation uh, mode at the time so i had a jar of uh, charcoal tablets that i was taking as well as drinking so that would soak up the alcohol but i like i we drank a massive amount over that time like, what's moderation Oh, so moderation is, I had given up alcohol maybe seven months before this and I had uh, tried this uh, technique called moderation. So it's like mindful drinking. So you basically say, I'm just going to have four drinks. So I'm going to finish when I have four drinks um, or uh, whatever. And, but that's moderation. So some people can do it. I have a couple of friends who drank like me back in the day, but who really moderate, who can uh, moderate now. I can't, you know, one was never enough. But I could have none, or I could have fifteen. Like there was yeah. never any in between, so okay. I couldn't moderate.
0: And what led to that decision to try the moderation?
1: Um, so because my drinking was leading me to do all these horrific things, like I wasn't the mother that I thought I would be. You know, mm. um,
0: what do you mean by that? I wasn't um, the mother I thought I'd be.
1: So, well, motherhood is really tough. Um, it. I moved to suburbia, had uh, a couple of kids, and, um. I suppose, you know, I never thought I would be somebody who didn't remember how my kids got to bed.
0: Okay.
1: But I was. Now, I'm so lucky that I have a phenomenal husband who, if he saw me boozing, he'd really... But he he was never a big drinker, so, you know, he took the reins all the time. Mm. But that's so unfair, you know, just because I couldn't handle my drink or... You know, because I drank to excess or whatever. It's just, it's unfair. And that's not who I wanted to be. Like Mm. those little absolute dotes that I chose to bring into the world. Mm. They didn't need that. Mm. They need a fully present, beautiful mommy. Mm. You know, they didn't need. And then the self-hatred, like just took up so much time to hate yourself so much for a full day or two or three after after drinking you know and it just felt like there was time again time after time after time again that I just wake up and I was like I just can't do this anymore I can't I just can't Mm -hmm. and um Yeah. So that was that the last time was in Spain Mm. where again, like a hangover again, Gary, the Gary Lama headed off um, for a day's sightseeing. We were in a beautiful part in Spain. I Mm. absolutely had the worst hangover of my life in that bed that day. And And do you
0: remember the night before?
1: No. No, I impaled my head against the cistern of a toilet on my way to bed that night. That's about all I, uh, all I remember. Um, I, um, yeah, I had basically uh, literally in the bed that night or that day with the hangover just before the wedding or whatever. um, I was like, right, I feel so physically sick now and my heart's palpitation. I have sheer panic like I've never had before and I'm going to die. And I'm going to be, I'll I'll die in this bed now. Uh, They'll come and get me and put me in a body bag. My two little kids will have a mom who's dead because of alcohol. That was the sheer panic. Like my heart was beating, I'd say 200 uh, times an hour or whatever. And it was a case of, okay. So we went to the wedding. I was so hungover. I fell asleep at the wedding. Um, and I was drinking for that entire day. And um, now the, the drink didn't even touch the sides because I'd been so hungover the day. And there was something and I, it's bigger than me that came upon me in that moment. And I had a gin, it was half full and whatever happened and I just handed it to him and very dramatically said, this will be the last drink that I will ever have in my life. Yeah. and it was
0: wow. and he
1: took it and then I sat yeah. down and I said take a picture this feels like a big moment <laughs> and, it, and it was a big moment it was a phenomenally big moment because I haven't had a drink since <laughs> you know so I think as I kind of reflect now yeah. there was all these little bits and bits and bits and bits and bits that led to this like I've gone out probably a thousand a thousand nights in my life. Mm. There's been a thousand shame stories, you know, and it was all of those that built and built and built and built for all of that time.
0: Yeah.
1: And then it was, it was done. There was, it felt like freedom, liberation. Okay, let's do this. And the day after we were uh, checking out of a hotel and the receptionist was, um he was a guy and he was a bit pissy with me as we were um uh, checking out or whatever. And I went, oh, well, What's what's your man's problem? And Gary said, Oh, do you not remember when we checked in? Yeah, you were really drunk and you were really obnoxious. And he just thought you were this really obnoxious, drunk Irish woman. Ugh. And I went, What what? I didn't remember it. I was like, but I'm a doat. <laughs> like, how could he think that I'm I'm yeah. that person? And I just, I was like, there I go again, misrepresenting myself. Mm. And there's one culprit and its name is alcohol. Mm. So in that moment, when I decided this was the end, I just went on this journey that's kind of taken up the last five years. Now there was little, you know, little pebbles being thrown at my life for years and years beforehand. Mm. and I was saying, Olivia, you you can't drink. It's not normal to vomit for uh, 12 hours. It's not uh, normal to get somebody to pull over 17 times in the car so you can get sick like Mm. alcohol didn't agree with me you know so Mm. um I just think it was all those um incidences that just that something just bigger than me came over me and just said no we're done you're ready you're ready oh I was I was ready and a half I was so ready
0: so putting down that gin And saying very dramatically, this is the last gin I'm ever going to have, the last drink I'm ever going to have. What was it like from there? Was it hard?
1: Um, Nothing will ever be as hard as how I felt on the inside when I was hungover. Like there is no, there is absolutely no feelings as horrific as all of them. Listen. It took work. It definitely did. Um, it took a lot of that. Me revisiting like uh, all those reasons why I decided to give it up in the first place. Um, nothing like it. It took a bit of work, but nothing was as hard as realizing in all those moments that I was perceived as someone who I absolutely did not want to be. Um, So I went absolutely headfirst into loads of quitlet. So like memoirs of women who'd had really problematic relationships with alcohol. Uh, The first book, The Day After, I bought a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And like she literally held me, a lady called Catherine Gray, um, through her vulnerability. And I I saw a lot of myself in her journey as well. Um, So lots of those quitlet books. I listened to thousands of podcasts I journaled I did some affirmations I um, meditated then I started uh, going to so could, people just appeared in front of me, little angels along the way, like spiritual healers and Reiki practitioners and, you know, all these people who would try and, and life coaches and therapists and all the rest. Well, one life coach, one therapist. <laughs> um, so they helped me get rid of the avalanche of emotion that came afterwards. So when you kind of So, when I gave it up, I had to then look back at all the stuff that happened while I was drinking and when I was drunk. And that kind of, it definitely, I was coming onto the motorway one day, and this memory hit me like an absolute train of pure, unadulterated shame I actually shuddered and then I slowly started to you know unravel all of those bits through all those things that I've just mentioned there what was the memory um like a drunken kind of behavior I, I can't to be honest with you I actually can't remember what it was now but it literally made me my skin crawl you know mm. um And all of those things. And then about maybe three years into my sobriety, I just realized I have no shame anymore. It's gone. Wow. It's absolutely gone. And to have the peace and the serenity and the vitality and the passion and the motivation that I have now Mm. in comparison to the shame, the self-loathing, the guilt, the regret, you know, it just feels like I've been let out of a prison and that I'm now, you know, the captain of my own ship and I'm totally in control. And probably the bit that kept me going as well in the very beginning was when I'd open my eyes, there was nothing there to make me feel like shit. Like there was nothing there to absolutely, you know, provide an avalanche of shame. There was nothing. It was gone. I'd remember absolutely everything, totally intentional about who I was and what I was going to do, and nights out. And like I still go on nights out, I would you believe I dance at weddings <laughs> while I'm sober? I know it took years of practice. Um, but I do all the things that every single person in the world does. It absolutely has enhanced my life in the most seismic way. Did you miss the alcohol in those first few months? Did you miss it? No, no. I never drank to cope. So, I never, you know, I was never at the end of the day saying, Oh, I need my gin or I need a glass of wine or whatever. I drank to connect. So, to connect Mm -hmm. with my friends on nights out or whatever. And, okay, so there was, we had to navigate those little things a little bit better. So, maybe I would always bring the car or, you know, I pretend drank for a couple of, uh, probably about a year and a half. So, not so much with my core group of friends, but, you know, the people on the outside peripheries. So, like if I went to, um, maybe like Gary's friends' weddings or whatever, I wasn't gonna say, I'm not drinking, because it literally it's like, oh, it 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 warrants a lot of questions. People are just so Uh, curious about it, you know, Uh, because there's so few people who drink or who have chosen to give up uh, drinking. And then they always like, well, are you an alcoholic? And I don't feel like an alcoholic. I never have. Uh, I would have maybe said the word once or twice, but but I had no other reference points Point for problematic drinking. Mm. So I am a thing called a grey area drinker. I remember the point in the road where I heard on a podcast, uh, a grey area drinker. And as she was talking, a lady called Jolene Park, an American lady, she uh, coined the term. I remember listening to that entire podcast with her going, Oh my God, I'm a grey area drinker. That describes me perfectly. So my life looked great on the outside but it was massively problematic internally. I held down a job, I was highly functional, um, but there was problems. And there was problems if I look back from the very beginning, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: always took it to excess or whatever, but um, I suppose I do often say, you know, if you handed me, if you sat there and wrote a check for a million euro and handed it to me and said, Olivia, okay, here's a million euro tax free for you. And the only stipulation is you have to drink every Friday and Saturday night like you did. Mm. I, there's absolutely no way I would take it because nothing can buy what I feel inside now. Like nothing can buy the freedom, the passion. I know I've said it before, the vitality. Like I cannot express to you how impactful this has been in my life. It is just such a joy to be sober.
0: In the first few months where you were adamant, you know, this is me now, I'm not drinking anymore. Did you go and socialize? Did you go to nights
1: out or did you kind of hibernate? Yeah. So listen, we, our kids were very young at the time. Like I never said no to anything, but like there were. The Invitations weren't coming thick and fast, you know. <laughs> so, our core group of friends were all at the same stage. So, but yeah, no, I went to things I probably drove a lot of the time, and then I didn't have to really explain myself. But, um, it, I suppose I've only really found my feet and my confidence. And I, I in the last two years, like it has just this. Uh, self-assuredness and confidence has kind of grown as the time has moved on yeah
0: yeah wow it's really inspiring actually and I can just the thing that's really striking me is just how ready you were in that moment and it it, it's all it almost sounds like it was easy once you put down that drink yeah
1: am I right in that absolutely yeah there was so much pain beforehand I had I had reached like this was the end of it. I was so utterly done with feeling. And I think probably thinking <clears throat> the day before that I would leave my children without a mother, I think that probably really sent me over the edge. Mm-hmm. So that was the end. You know,
0: Yeah. how old were they?
1: Uh, At the, so five, so three and one, like actual babies. Really little. Yeah, yeah. really little. Yeah. So they, they don't, they say things like mama doesn't drink alcohol, you know? Mm. And, uh, so they've never seen, well, they've seen me drunk when they were three and one or whatever, but they wouldn't have known, but they've never Mm. seen me drink wine. They've never seen me drink anything. It's Mm. just, yeah. Yeah. And does
0: Gary Lamack, does he still...
1: He still partakes in a little can of pink gin. Uh, he would probably absolutely kill me for saying that. But he does. He still he still drinks, uh, but not to excess, never to excess. Like a mannerly drinker and then wild wife. Now he's still like I was, you know, okay, I'm painting a kind of a negative picture. Like I was good crack. Do you know, mm. I was, I was exuberant. I was wild. There was good, there was good times. Yeah. But then towards the end, the darkness became so dark mm. that I couldn't. And, you know, I suppose my intention about doing this, like it's, it's a big feat to be a sober woman in Ireland, you Mm. know, and it's a bigger feat to have your face on camera and to own it and say, I am a problematic drinker, Mm. but I'm doing this because I know about vulnerability and I receive it so well when other people are vulnerable with me, but I've got so much inspiration and so much light from others yeah. I just want to maybe maybe it sounds naive but I want to pass a little bit of light on to people because I know there's people walking the dog or making the bed or driving the car to work who know in their heart of hearts that their drinking is problematic mm-hmm. they mightn't be an alcoholic like they mightn't be hiding nuggets of vodka in the cistern mm-hmm. but are they living 100% of their potential I wasn't, I look back, it really held me back Mm -hmm. in comparison to, you know, the passion fest that I am now, you know, Mm -hmm. it really held me back. But I feel now, so I'm 42 and I feel I'm ready to kind of springboard myself into this new phase of my life and I can do it with the utmost of confidence. Like I'll never have, you know, a wee glass of wine to settle my nerves. So everything has to be done with the utmost of bravery, you know, and I just kind of want people to know that problematic drinking is a thing, Mm. um, but you can absolutely untangle from that, you know, and you can live your life in Ireland as a sober woman and have a really, really good life. In those moments now
0: where you are feeling really anxious or really nervous and you know you just have to go in and do it.
1: What do you do to get through that when previously you would have reached for a glass of wine? Yeah. So, so I breathe and I center myself Mm. and I uh, call on a few little affirmations and little bits and I call for, I sometimes call for a power bigger than me, Mm. you know, and say, fill me with what I need to be filled with to conquer this day or to achieve what I want to achieve or, You know, it's just, it's that kind of grounding thing. So I do a lot of journaling, I do a lot of affirmations, a massive amount of meditation. And meditation has been extraordinary for me. So I will get that light back in, I'll get the little tear of joy. And I just, and you just keep going. So you've said a couple of times
0: that it actually, it's quite hard to be a sober woman in Ireland. How was it
1: received by people when you shared with them that you had stopped drinking? Um, yeah. So more often than not, they would have said things like you, you were grand. You were just go crack. What are you talking about? You're absolutely fine. And mm-hmm. um, they would never have seen it as a problem. And um, I suppose they would have seen me maybe at the beginning of the night and the end of the night. And um, They didn't feel the feelings that were going on inside. So they didn't maybe have the blackouts or, you know, the waking up in the morning, not remembering anything, or they would never have like the friends. I suppose the truest person who saw the most of it was Gary or whatever. um, And he would agree that it it was problematic, uh, that I literally... um, it, it it was very, very tough for me. Um, but yeah, the the I even got it like two weeks ago. I met two of my university friends and they, you know, uh, we were chatting about it or whatever, my not drinking. And they were like, well, you actually weren't that bad. And I was like, well, I actually was, you know, just it looked. And I suppose that's one of the things about grey area drinking. It looks like you're doing great and it looks like there's not a problem. But un- internally there is. You know, so, yeah. yeah. And did anyone fall away from your life? Not really. Not really, to be honest. Now, we've changed. Now, there was a couple of things I wasn't invited to uh, because they were big drinking occasions. And listen, that pinched, you know, that did, that did hurt um, at the time. Uh, but you know if they were going to maybe have to face me sober sober Mary in the corner, uh, it mightn't have gone down too well. Um, but we've I've had to, a lot of my friendships we've had to just um, redefine what we do so like it maybe it's not like I can't I can't stay up past 10 o'clock so it'll be like a brunch or um a lunch or like a, a night away or whatever it's it's redefined but I'm still good fun I'm still exactly who I always was I just don't have oh the exhaustion and the loathing and all the really negative things but I'm everything I always was like I've worked really hard on being that person mm-hmm. like I will take things maybe a little uh more over the top like I I turn into I turn on show pony mode and you know because I went to a hen a couple of years ago and uh, actually one of the girls the hen her sister came up and she goes oh my god I think Olivia's back on the sauce. She's over there <laughs> dancing like a lunatic. She must be drunk. But I wasn't because I knew I had to kind of up level. Okay. For people not to think, oh, sober is boring. Sober is dry, sober. So I'm kind of trying to counteract that all the time. But yeah. I'm not dry. I'm not boring. I'm still the same old me, but I just don't drink. I think it's really interesting what you said there in that
0: putting on that show pony front. Okay. And it, and I see it all the time. I see it all the time with my clients. So we try to be someone for the other people that yeah. we're with instead of just being ourselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, the show pony, she feels kind of natural mm. at times. But yeah, it's, it's a shame that we have to do that. But, you know, I suppose my friends would have always expected me to be one thing I mean, yeah. maybe they didn't maybe this is my own perception of it but I tried to give them what they always had and for the judgment not to be there
0: mm. you know
1: for them their idea of me to change because I was still the same person yeah I just was the the person who had chosen not to drink yeah. and in a culture that again is so entrenched with alcohol it's like it's so hard for people to accept it Mm -hmm. to acknowledge it and to really be at peace with it you know yeah yeah
0: what would you say to somebody listening who's thinking oh gosh this sounds very like me yeah how do I get to that moment where I put down that gin yeah and say that's it what would you say to that person
1: I think a good way to start is to listen, get out a piece of paper, write the pros and cons of drinking, just down simple things. You know, we used to do it when we were teenagers, you know, mm. pros and cons list. So what does drinking add to my life? And then what does it take away? And then once you have brought that to light, you can then go, okay, maybe it's not doing the things I thought it was doing. So just assessing your relationship with it. There's so much support. Like five years ago, I didn't access anything on like Instagram or uh, the only thing I had was like old fashioned books. So that's the way I started. Mm -hmm. And I started, I'd say I've read 50 books on giving up alcohol, okay? And then, so now there's beautiful accounts on Instagram and there's sober community. And you know, you can message somebody who's sober. They are the most beautiful souls on earth, they will come back, they offer encouragement and they'll say, you can do it. I I did it. And just the level of motivation in that. If you can see somebody who's done it, then that will build your belief that you'll be able to do it too. But again, I think the main thing is just start to get curious. Your intuition, you know, deep down. I knew deep down for years. I knew it. And I just... I just didn't have the skills or the language or the capability or I wasn't living in the right place because Ireland like there's drink involved with everything but I knew and you know deep down and just explore it just it's sober curiosity that's what it's good if you're sober curious just put the word into Google have a look start a little journey and see where you end up When it comes to
0: behaviours that don't serve us, whether that be drinking too much alcohol, drug use, comfort eating or disordered eating, trying to plan and control our lives very tightly, impulsive financial spending or sexual activities, or even behaviours like watching too much Netflix or too much scrolling on your phone, there is usually a reason we do this. In my therapy room, this is something I explore in detail with my clients. What is the function of this behaviour? How is it serving you? How long has it been happening in your life? And as well as how it is serving you, what is the cost? Olivia spoke so eloquently about how her drinking served her and her social anxiety, but also the cost this behaviour brought to her life. When it comes to your life or that of a loved one, how is this behaviour serving you or them? If this resonates with you, I want you to get really clear on this. How is this serving you? But also, how is it costing you? For me, I love being in control. It feels safe. If I plan and overthink, it helps me to feel like I am on top of everything. So on top of everything that it mitigates harm or threat. But of course, life doesn't really work in that way. So rather than my overthinking and planning and rigidity protecting me, it often costs me. It costs me being present with my family, it costs me peace of mind, it costs me connection in my life, it costs me happiness and joy in living in the moment. This is something I've been aware of in my life for a very long time. And so I can now loosen control. I can now let go, I can now relax into things. I can now challenge the desire to plan and overthink and catastrophize. Is this something I'm now completely free of? No. Will this desire to be in control ever fully leave me? Probably not. It's been a lifetime in the making and it has served me well. But what I do know is that now this is something that I can manage and that I can work with, especially when I start to slip back into old habits or into trying to hold on to things so tightly when I'm feeling vulnerable or tired or scared or anxious. So let me ask you again, how is your unhelpful or problematic behaviour serving you? but also what is it costing you? When it comes to building this awareness, which is exactly what exploring this in my therapy room with my clients does, it can be really helpful to grab a piece of paper and a pen and to journal. I talk about it all the time, but journaling helps us to reflect and to build knowledge and understanding of our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, and in turn our behaviours and unhelpful patterns or thinking styles all of which will go a long way in helping you to grow your awareness of the problematic or unhelpful things you do or the habits that you have. So grab your pen and paper and consider this with the problematic or unhelpful things. Are you trying to numb or avoid your feelings? Are you trying to feel a sense of safety or security or control? Are you trying to comfort yourself soothe? Are you trying to distract yourself or occupy your mind? Are you seeking a thrill? Why are you doing these things? How are they serving you? What is the function? So start writing. Start building this awareness. Start exploring this, whether at home with your journal, whether with a friend or loved one, or whether in therapy. With awareness comes change and perhaps you're ready to start that process now. If so, and if you're curious, look too in the show notes of today's episode where I have shared resources I think will really benefit you. And if you are indeed engaging in this behaviour to comfort yourself soothe or because you're trying to cling tightly onto control, revisit the end of Season 1, Episode 4 of Unspoken, where I share a beautiful inner child exercise that you can practice along with me and that I hope benefits you as much as it does my beautiful clients. I'll see you next week for another episode of Unspoken. Between now and then, look after yourself. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at the wellness psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial.